And meritocracy only works if people let it aren't bad. <laughs> <laughs> like it's rule we number should, one. Yeah, I don't know. To to me, and you know, this is the nerdy way to talk about it, but like declaring that your system is going to be a meritocracy is saying like we are going to solve this as an optimization problem. Okay, great. What's your objective function? Duh. <laughs> can we can we give legacy 25% of the objective function weight? Sure, yeah. why not? You could have got a potato into USC for that amount of money. <laughs> IndyCar is what happens when dirt track moonshine racers look at F1 and they're like, hey, we could do that too. Ashley mentioned that like schools have, I think, Friday off around here for Cesar Chavez Day. Really? And that was when, yeah. Well, that was, that was when I realized that in my head, I thought that Che Guevara's name was Cesar Chavez. And I was like, seems weird that he's got a holiday. <laughs> um, and she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, he killed a lot of people. And she was like... He was like a, a farmer in civil rights act. I'm like, no, he was a Cuban revolutionary. <laughs> Welcome to the Farmhouse. My name is Alex Hobbs. I'm Jordan Smart. And we are here again with you doing a fireside chat, not having a guest this time, but hopefully we'll have one again soon. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to do a, a grad school-based podcast during spring break, but we're going to we're gonna make it work. <laughs> See, I, I didn't even remember those for <laughs> yeah. break. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, unless you want this to just be an hour and a half of extremely shrill screaming down in Cancun. <laughs> we don't have mics there we don't have a setup or a studio i let's just say i have my doubts about the quality of audio we'd be able to record in that environment <laughs> <laughs> just get some water oh, yeah, bring yeah. some gopros yeah. Yeah. set up and super shop. good it's for fine. for podcast recording <laughs> we might actually we, we'd suddenly get a lot of views <laughs> anyway, anyway, so today's today's subject we kind of want to talk about was a little bit of F1. I, I was particularly interested in this subject because you had raised it in a previous episode as possible subject, and it's something that I I have interest in, and, you know, I, mostly because of, honestly, genuinely, because of shows like Top Gear, but I have never learned much about it's it. It's interesting because, like, I guess, like, two years ago, F1, like, F1 as a sport is owned by a rights holding company in the way the NFL is owned by, you know, an organization called the NFL itself. There is a rights holding organization called Formula One Management that recently sold the rights to F1 to an American company. And so this sport that has been traditionally very European based is now owned by an American group and they're making a, a big push to promote the sport to Americans which in you know historical terms have not always been super engaged in it since the races tend to happen at very odd hours like midnight, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. 
U.S. time since they take place at various points around the world. Yeah, and that, that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know some people don't mind recording those things and watching them at odd hours or maybe just staying up really late and taking a nap in the afternoon. But for me, I know I've, I've always tended to watch a lot less of the Australian <laughs> Open than other Opens yeah. when they're happening in tennis. So that that's kind of understandable. Yeah, so I think, I think the best place to kind of start with F1 is its history, largely because that is a lot of what F1 built itself on. Like into the actual contracts, teams take home a bigger slice of the prize money if they have been in f1 longer is it is it a is the portion related to how many years they've been in directly or is it sort of however many years you have been operating under the name that you are operating under now you get a a multiplier onto your prize money at the end of the year because so if they change names yes yes and that that's a very big that has become the subject of several lawsuits and and some very big contentious issues uh, over over the last couple of years, really. Why would they set it up that so way? So mostly because that suits Ferrari, since Ferrari has been in the sport pretty much since the beginning and is incredibly politically <laughs> powerful. But it's hard to write into the charter of F1 that Ferrari just gets more money than everybody else. So the, <laughs> the kind of thing that they, they justify it on is like, oh, well, you're contributing to the heritage and, and prestige of the sport by being here continually. So they want to incentivize people to stick it into the sport and not just bail when they have a couple of bad years and then come back when they think they can maybe win again. And But that just seems like it becomes so much more insurmountable for any new team to join them. yeah yeah it does seem like that. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be the reason there are now there's basically one privateer team that's not owned or has a significant connection to a, a major auto manufacturer left on the grid and uh who's that williams f1 and uh they are they are now so much slower than everyone else on the grid that people are wondering yeah, there, there's a rule in F1 that if you are more than 107% slower, like if your lap time is more than 107% of the fastest person in that session, then you're not allowed in the race because it would be dangerous to, to be going that slow while other cars are going sure. faster around you. And Williams are not quite at that point, but they're 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 close enough that people have raised the issue. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. How do you even keep competing at that point? Because surely a lot of the money's based off of well. So so again, like yeah. <laughs> William, like I said, Williams is now kind of the back of the the midfield, but they're also over the long arc one of the most successful teams in the history of Formula One. They've won many many championships. It's just that they they do not have the backing of a major auto manufacturer, and that means that their budget for a year is only about one twenty hundred and forty million dollars. Whereas Mercedes and Ferrari are spending in excess of four or five hundred million dollars on their car. That's yeah. huge. <laughs> oh jeez. Yeah. yeah. What is maybe craziest about the history of F one is is how it has gotten to that point. Because it, it really did just start back in really the the early nineteen hundreds as <laughs> almost like the way we do like lunar X prizes now, where people are like just Sure. You know, see if you can put something together that can do this. Like Grand Prix racing started out basically to see if somebody could put together 
car is capable of doing you know long distances at, at reasonably high speeds and it, it was designed to really in the like the early 1900s spark investment and interest in developing better cars because they were a new technology and so there were these prize races that were held at, at various points along the world i think the first one that is generally recognized as a grand prix was held in france there were races in england races in germany races in italy and it just kind of you know happened almost i i actually think there's a real parallel with the way esports tournaments are held now where there are just these these kind of individual tournaments that roughly make up a circuit and you know people make their name on them but there, sure. there is no like organized world championship or for different games right but but there is kind of this collective atmosphere and environment surrounding the the tournament scene right 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 and then it built up over time over a lot of time uh, yeah it sounds and then like. you know there were there were a couple intervening world wars that made <laughs> yeah yeah i'm sure that, that international help. racing um kind of tricky but kind of tricky <laughs> yeah and i mean that's that's the thing is is in the lead up to World War II, I mean, one of the ways that Germany really got onto the world stage was by putting together these Grand Prix racing cars. Mercedes in particular and, and what is now essentially Audi had the backing of the German government to spend the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars developing these cars that, that were just world beaters, just just demonstrating engineering prowess in this way. That's a little less the the undercurrent now. There there isn't really much like in the way of national teams and and nationalism invent, investing in the sport in the same way that you see in the the Olympics or the the World Cup. Sometimes you see nations really making investments to make sure that they have the infrastructure necessary to create teams capable of participating on the world stage. F one has remained mostly commercial endeavor now rather than a a national or governmental one but but like i said yeah budgets have gotten pretty pretty big in in the intervening decades that's very interesting how quickly it it well i guess not quickly but it does seem like it took off in a big way and now that it doesn't even need that same sponsorship because like i mean your your investment is is i suppose you could argue that if governments invested more in it they would help their country have more jobs and that sort of thing but also you know it's people don't need cars to go that fast <laughs> so <laughs> it's a little harder to justify yeah i mean that's that's the thing is is after the 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 war um the wars in in 1950 the first sort of modern f1 like contiguous you know year on year season was held and i think i think mercedes and, and ferrari were there uh, mercedes participated in the early years won a couple of championships with Juan Manuel Fangio, who also won some championships with Ferrari, became the first real person to to lay claim to being the greatest driver of all time up until that point. But then in 1955, Mercedes had an accident while racing at Le Mans, had one of their cars spear off the track and kill a fair chunk of people. Um, oh, man. I think, let, me, let me make sure I get the the number here. Right, but I think it was something like 200 people Jeez. Yeah, were killed. And as a result, Mer Mercedes just pulls out of the sport entirely. Yeah, okay, excuse me. Killed 83 spectators and injuring nearly 180 more. Wow. Yeah. So, so at that point, I mean, that disaster and a couple disasters 
that really for a long time squelched any manufacturer's interest in motorsport. It, it got a real reputation for being a blood sport, for being a death sport. And so Ford, GM, all the, all these big blue chip companies didn't want their names potentially associated with something like that. And so for the longest time, racing was just these privateers and guys working out of their garage, more akin today to the kind of efforts you see in Formula SAE in engineering schools, just building what they mm. could and going out and racing with it. When did it pick back up? Throughout that, that basically it basically operates that way through the 50s and 60s. Then one, and this is you know shortcutting a whole lot of history, but probably the most notorious figure in F1 history gets involved, and that's Bernie Eccleston, who is you know starts as, as running a, an individual team, and eventually moves on to being the the organizer and and essentially head, like I said, of Formula One management, the person who holds the rights to F1 and kind of sets the the schedule and whatnot, and he makes essentially his life work the professionalization of F1. He he makes sure that TV and TV rights are, are a huge part of it and make sure that the races are not just something that, you know, you have to pay to come see, like you can be at your home and watching the, these races on TV in a time when that was, that was almost like making sure that these races were getting up on Twitch um, and, you know, reaching, reaching people where they were in a way that was not conventional. Sure, 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 sure. And so that that goes through basically a, a period of a couple decades where F1 builds up and builds up, but it remains mostly the, the providence of privateer teams. So Ferrari continues to be the most prominent name in the sport. McLaren comes along, is founded by a New Zealander, gets involved in the sport, and is very successful. There, there are a variety of other teams that kind of come and go, founded by former drivers who then, you know, found teams and get involved and whatnot trying to pin down exactly when f1 becomes it's it sort of the beast that it is today <laughs> is is kind of difficult um certainly by the 90s things were more more or less as they were today the sport has its heroes there's an established path and and people are now basically raising kids to be to become professional <laughs> racing drivers in the yeah that that sounds like a real start once you once that starts yeah. happening i mean you you get now you know at that point you have people who are from the age of like two to four getting into their first go-karts right with, <laughs> with the the Jeez. hope and, and twinkle in their eye to become f1 drivers and this this remains kind of the an ongoing issue in the sport is that it's not it's not cheap to even try to become an f1 driver yeah no i'd imagine that's a pretty high barrier to entry yeah. i mean in in today's money you're looking at on the order of 10 to a hundred thousand dollars 10 grand to buy a cart and then on the order of a hundred thousand dollars a year oh my god yeah in like ongoing cost to go and race in these junior series right for which you're not being paid for imagine going to baseball minor leagues and having to put together a hundred thousand dollars, either in sponsorship money or out of pocket and whatnot, just to have the right to participate in the sport. Wow, I that makes complete sense. It just sounds so crazy to me that that's wow. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I wonder how much that affects the. And this isn't to say that the individuals who do this are incredibly talented, but 
it does make you wonder how much talent they're missing out on just due to that barrier of entry, you know? Yeah, I mean, the that that's it, it continues to be an issue. I can't imagine that it almost seems unsustainable. Like it, I mean, the it, the thing is, as big as this sport is, and as much money as there is involved, there are only twenty seats on the grid. So, oh right, yeah. yeah. So, so it's not like you need to sustain rosters the size of a typical sporting league. Sure, right? You, like you don't need hundreds or, or thousands of people going through this feeder system to try and get that. And at the same time, a lot of people who do kind of start on the way to F1 end up branching out into grand touring cars or sports prototypes and make their lives as professionals that way at whatever point the sponsorship sort of runs out for them and they they have to go professional at at that level. So it's 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 tricky and that is both the the dark side and I think the appeal and the glamour associated with F1 because of how much money is involved it almost necessarily draws the eye and and attention because it's almost like you know the, these guys are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to go do that thing you almost just want to see like well what what makes makes it worth spending this money to go do that right right right, right. Like I, said, I think i think mercedes is estimated to spend like 500 million dollars a year on the car but by their own estimates they get back the equivalent of like two billion dollars in advertising worth by participating wow. in f1 and and by being as successful as they have been in in recent years wow that's that's crazy yeah. um now, now to take it back a second because we kind of dove in real real fast and, and and exciting i do want to ask because this is how little i know about f1 personally everyone knows racing everyone knows there's different types f1 what type of courses are there? Are they, they're not just ovals, right? No. They're in, more. In-, in fact, F1 does not race ovals. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So F1 is exclusively street and road courses, which is kind of a, a confusing terminology, but street courses are essentially city streets and, and public roads that are temporarily closed off and the cars are allowed to race around them. And then road courses refers to dedicated purpose-built tracks that are usually outside of the city center somewhere that the cars can go and, and race, and the, the course can be laid out as a track designer wants it to be. Okay, okay. And how, how long are these races normally? Like, how do they last a day? Do they last half a day? Do they last much shorter than that? So the, the, the time limit is two hours. It was kind of loosely enforced until a couple of years ago, I think 2012. At, at one point, there was a, a race that had an extremely long rain delay and went on to be like four hours long. And so they, they just instituted a hard two-hour limit. But typically, you're looking at 60 to 70 laps, somewhere on the order of one hour to an hour and a half for a race to happen. So wait, so then what happens during a rain delay like that? So what happens typically is the cars will race through most weather conditions, through dry and through wet. It's only in really extreme weather that the cars will park themselves and try and wait for the weather to cease for a moment and and clear the track a little bit. Okay, okay. And But it sounded like you said that was a four-hour one. If it had gone on that long, would they have just ended it after if a certain amount of time had passed or so that, yeah there was no like hard and fast rule about how to end it at some point the race marshals can just declare okay if i think 75 percent of the race has happened like we'll just call it there and everyone officially finishes in the position that they're in i think if more than half the okay. race has happened then they call it there but then there's reduced points awarded for the race oh okay yeah. okay sure 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 
Yeah. So. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So like that that actually having the flexibility there it makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That that was kind of some of the bigger ones that I had questions about. You know, I, I assume these things are going pretty fast. I don't know how many. It sounds like if they're if they're street and road based, there's probably a lot of turning. So I'd imagine that does. Even though they're obviously trying to go really fast, they're also probably limiting themselves a bit there because it's not just we're going in a straight line, not drag racing, you know? Yeah, I mean, so so that's F1 more than any other form of racing is defined by the fact that the cars bear no resemblance whatsoever to road cars. And so most of the the bodywork on it is dedicated to developing aerodynamic advantage, which is used not just in, in road cars to try and reduce drag and improve fuel economy and whatnot, but to basically generate negative lift in the way that an airplane tries to generate lift with its wings to help it take off. F1 cars are designed to be almost wings turned upside down to press the car into the track so that you can take corners much, much faster than you would be able to without that aerodynamic aid. Got to keep those cars in the ground. Yeah. To pretty, pretty... <laughs> pretty important you know um has there been any major and maybe you don't know about this maybe you do have there been any sort of major aerodynamic developments based off of or around f1 that they whether it be software you know that maybe does better cfd or or interesting new designs that maybe hadn't been done before that that were then applied in other areas so I think probably the most famous, and I'm not I'm not sure if it was F1, but there there was an F1 driver back in the '60s named Dan Gurney, who at one point was having issues with his car, was not getting enough downforce, not getting like enough of the air pressing the car into the track at the back, and so he went to the inverted wing that had been put onto the back of the car, and just stuck a flap onto the back of it, um, which. <laughs> managed to massively improve the the aerodynamics of the car and today now is you like that technology was transferred back it is now used in aircraft design to do kind of the opposite you take that whole arrangement flip it upside down and you now have a, a high lift device that can be used for typically either takeoff or or more maneuverable planes we'll use something like that that's probably the most famous example this is, I mean, this is the, my, maybe my biggest criticism of F1 is that its design restrictions are so divorced from road design that most of the innovation mm. that happens is not relevant to road car design. Sure. I do know that their their CFD practices have been criticized by by members of the, of at least the academic environment. They're, they're obviously operating under very different circumstances than typical cfd projects but sure i know it it at least used to be the case that f1 teams were notorious for running their cfd with super loose resolution conditions so that they could run they could run it faster and do a lot of iterations but you're not necessarily getting good information out of that Mm. They, they they certainly take advantage of advancements in cfd as much as possible it's it's real tough to point to anything that's kind of trickled down out of F1, especially re- related to aerodynamics, because the teams are so secretive about what they've done to to get advantage out of the cars. 
Yeah. No, I was going to ask that after I asked the question, which I, I realized after I asked it, I thought to myself, yeah, they probably don't want to share that, though. Because <laughs> yeah, guys, we've got, we've got this great new thing. It's amazing. Let me let me explain exactly how we do it. Here. Yeah, this is exactly how it works. Here's a blueprint. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. It's 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 a bit of a shame there, but... Um, but, yeah, I mean... It's, you know, that either way, it's interesting to hear. Yeah. I mean, as much as the, these cars look nothing and... and in many ways have nothing to do with road cars. I mean, the sum effect is that you now have a thing on four wheels, which is capable of holding six to seven G's through a turn, you know, by combination of the actual brakes and the aerodynamic braking effect will, will sustain five G's under braking. And the, the engines are powerful enough that despite all the drag and, and all that associated with the aerodynamics, they they're pumping out something like a thousand horsepower in qualifying trim and are able to get to you know 60 miles an hour in under two seconds and sustain two g's of, of acceleration down a straight which is just bonkers like yeah you know, these drivers are getting tossed around yeah yeah i mean i think aside from just the actual muscle and, and forces involved probably the most impressive thing is that the the cockpit of an f1 car can be something like 150 or 200 degrees for the duration of a Jeez. race drivers Jeez. yeah drivers will lose 10 pounds of water weight in that hour and a half span oh my goodness yeah, yeah it, it's incredibly <laughs> that sounds awful <laughs> like we, we've just reached a point where, where we're just so divorced from the, the the human is kind of the weakest part of the car right and so much of the car yeah. is built with the limiting factor being what can the driver take yeah, geez, that's I didn't realize the temperatures yeah. and, and weight loss. That's insane. Yeah, I mean, and it gets do they do they drink a lot of water right before every race and like yeah. So they they do have they dry and hydrate before the race and then they have drinks like a drink bottle in the car to try and keep them hydrated throughout. The, yeah, yeah. I mean, they need it. Sounds like yeah. I mean, it gets it gets worse when you're racing in like Malaysia and and Bahrain and and these places where the the track temperature is above 100 degrees before you even turn the car on <laughs> yeah i can see that not being super pleasant <laughs> well, they just plop it they don't want to plop a heavy nice air conditioner in there and just keep them cool yeah. the whole time yeah just to add some more weight on and 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 you know nice big maybe maybe put just one of the square ones the window ones right outside <laughs> the car window and then I'm thought it'd be fine. Yeah, yeah. I do. I do want to move on to our next segment, but I do have one more question. You have a note on here on our notes about an aerodynamic regulation change. Yeah. So part of what keeps F1 interesting and kind of shakes things up is that as much as the regulations constrain the cars, they also help to dictate the pace of innovation. And knowing that the rules makers will regularly try and shake up the formula by changing the rules with within the desire or intent to cause the engineers at each team to try something new, try something different. Mm. And sure, 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 sure. this year there has been an aerodynamic regulation change, which among things now makes the cars faster than they've ever been, but also kind of simplifies the airflow and gives the teams less power to direct the air maybe where they would like it because one of the things you can do when you're really good at aerodynamics is not just minimize the impact and drag 
that the air imparts to your car, but then create a deliberately turbulent and and messed up airflow behind you so that when somebody <laughs> gets close behind you, their car stops working because uh... you know, it's designed to, to fly or drive through cold, clean, smooth air. And if it comes up behind you in the wake of a car that is deliberately trying to stir it up as much as possible, then it's going to be much harder to try and overtake that car in front of you. So it's it's F one is just wacky racing. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not quite the same level <laughs> as you know having a, a red shell or a green shell that you you hold out behind <laughs> you to throw at the car behind you. But yeah, you know, they're they're trying to make it possible to for the cars to really fight wheel to wheel, which has been a, a weakness of the sport historically. That that I mean I certainly don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do to make it so that you can actually drive behind the other cars without them trying to sabotage you i just find it so funny <laughs> that they do that by default yeah i mean one of the, one of the uh, things that was really, really interesting good. we've now seen the first race of the new season was in australia last week and the aerodynamic aids are now such that you can visually see the vortexes coming off the back of the car so you'll you'll That's see crazy. a car you know go down a straight and it'll just have like these little white streaks of condensed water caught up in the vortex trailing off of it that that is just kind of you know if you could visualize that flow and and see what it looks like moving around it would <laughs> yeah it would it would look like the car was just blasting you know hot energy and air behind it to try and stave off anything coming up directly behind <laughs> it yeah that uh I, I wouldn't like that if I was following Probably a car. not, yeah. Not when <laughs> not when the car you're in is already 200 degrees and now you've got to drive behind a car which is you know, trying to spew as much of its heat and disturbed air into your flow as possible. <laughs> well, uh, do you think that's a good time to move on to our second segment? Yeah, yeah. I think if, if you are interested in F1 uh, listeners, Netflix recently produced a documentary uh, mostly focused on, on the drivers and teams and those a little bit further back in the grid because the the infighting becomes a little bit more desperate at times you know people are much more aware of the fact that there are hundreds if not well probably not thousands but dozens and hundreds of drivers interested in f1 seats at any given time and so if you're not performing constantly you will get cut and that will be the end of your time in f1 so it provides a pretty compelling human interest story to go along with the technical stuff we've been talking about so if you're more interested in that side of the sport i would recommend uh, you go check that out it's called drive to survive i think on on netflix oh that sounds really interesting yeah i might have to check that out yeah <laughs> well we'll be right back with you guys after a short break thank you so much for listening all right see you soon Hey, everybody. You remember that part of the last episode where I promised that Alex was going to be the one carrying you through the mid-episode break? This episode, I lied. I'm back. So I'm going to be the one thanking you for listening to this episode and extending our usual heartfelt thanks to Andy G. Cohen for the use of his songs Just a Blip from the album Through the Lens and the use of Scramby Eggs from the album Layers. If you'd like to find out more about his music, you can find it, as usual, at the Free Music Archive. If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, you can find us at Facebook and Twitter at The Farmcast or at our website, thefarmcast.com. We do have a new subreddit, r slash thefarmhouse, where you'll be able to discuss this episode and all the others in the comment thread there. 
Hope you enjoyed listening to the first half of this episode, and hope you enjoy listening to the second half of this episode, where I do keep my other promise from last week, and we discuss the recent college admission scandal. Catch you on the flip side. Welcome back. Uh, we are here with the second half of the podcast. We want to talk a bit about the college admissions scandal. But prior to that, we just want to note that, you know, our podcast is called The Farmhouse. We originally started and talked with a good number of folks at Stanford where we both went or, in Jordan's case, are still attending. Um, we don't express the opinions or views of Stanford or any school in any way. We're just two guys on a podcast. Just want to make that clear. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to pretend that I know the full legal <laughs> disclaimer that we maybe should offer at this point. But uh, yeah. just whatever, whatever it is, let's just pretend that we did. We we are expressing only our opinions, our hot takes on on this situation, and <laughs> nothing that yeah, we say yeah, should exactly. be interpreted. In so any other um, the the scandal, and I don't know. Uh, every bit of the details. I've heard a number of different things, but uh, from my understanding, a lot of it started with parents of potential students to schools bribing different coaches or individuals at those schools at different places, uh, Stanford, USC. I mean, it could be really any any school. Yeah, I think, I think my understanding is that the FBI was apparently investigating a completely, maybe not completely, but, but a separate matter and came across this guy who was billing himself as a college admissions counselor who was connected into many high-powered, you know, very rich people with kids who were looking to get into various schools around the country. And he was essentially being a middleman between them and a network of people who would help them achieve, you know, their, their goals in less than legitimate okay. ways. So. They found him while looking into something else and then seemed to have unraveled a lot of other things that are happening simultaneously with uh, a wide variety of people, it sounds like. I mean, there, there's some celebrities that have been affected. There's, um, And, and I, I, I'm not in any way trying to this – isn't, this isn't me casting aspersions. I don't know who is and is guilty. Uh, I, know, I think to just today that some individuals did plead guilty, some didn't which is really fast. I, I don't, <laughs> very, very quick, but yeah, <laughs> this isn't me trying to throw names out there. Cause I, I, I don't think the names really matter here in this, in this situation. Yeah. I don't, um, it's more, <laughs> I, I guess I don't want to talk about anybody's yeah. specific case, but just, just the abstract knowledge that there were various celebrities and you know, very rich people spending somewhere from the order of 10,000 to a million dollars to to get their kids into yeah. various schools. And I think one of the things that really shocks me and 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 we talked about this a little bit Jordan but prior to and and perhaps we talked about this in previous podcasts but one of the things that's also been in the limelight a lot recently has been the Harvard admissions process and sort of how that works. And some of the things, mm, yeah. if I remember from an article correctly a long time ago, some of the things that they were asking the individuals who look at those applications were, uh, one of the questions that stuck out to me was, does a family's contribution to the school affect your desire to accept or deny this person from the school that they're applying to? And the basic answer was, it may. And so... You have people working on these admissions <laughs> councils who aren't even denying 
that large quantities of money given to the school <laughs> legally as donations affect their choices. And then you have pe- that recently people coming out and bribing single individuals illegally, and it's just like, why didn't you just give it to the school? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's the thing, is that the character... I think everyone is kind of... You know, pe- people who are not yeah, as as naive as freshly driven snow are aware that the major motivation for parents of college age children making outsized donations to universities is to help smooth the way for their child's admission into that school. Th- this was deliberate, not not just you know, we're going to present you this kid and also $70 million or, or something like that. I think, I think Dr. Dre was, was recently caught up in the fact that he had given $70 million to USC, but this was people paying other people to, to take the SAT or the ACT in place of their kids. Very notoriously, they were payments made to athletics coaches at these universities to either say that these kids were top recruits or to to falsify you know records of the kids having worked out with them or something like that that this was an an attempt not just to honestly present the kid with the money to open the door a little bit wider but to deliberately defraud and deceive the admissions committee about the qualifications of the kid as a candidate yeah and it so it's not even just sort of the subject I started with. It, it's clearly even more, you know, deeply ingrained in problems than just that. But it does kind of raise the question, uh, and I think you had raised this prior to us starting, which is like, these systems generally try and advertise themselves as meritocracies. How accurate is that now? Is it, is it is there just a bump in the road and it needs to be fixed, or is it a more deeply built-in issue that needs to be addressed more more deep into what it what it really is and what the what the what the process is i feel like part of the backdrop and and i do want to address that that point directly about what does this say about the state of college admissions and and meritocracy's place in that but i feel like part of the backdrop is that college has become just the most naked and brazen, essentially class signifier in American society. And the reason I feel like we are so keen to ensure that college admissions are fair, above board, and meritocratic is because we we now live in an environment where it's just expected that where you go to college, hopefully how well you do there and whatnot, has an almost dictatorial effect on the rest of your life and we see both that these parents are desperate to get their kids into the right school and then also the reaction of you know what does this say not just about college because there's plenty of other things that people apply to and and that are not the most above board and and i'm not sure i want to use the word corrupt but are not necessarily the most egalitarian or meritocratic but th- this feels like a system that you are almost a part of whether or not you want to be, that even if you make the decision not to go to college, that is a decision to place yourself somewhere in this hierarchy that has built itself up in society. 
And finding out that that aspect has been rigged or corrupted in some way, I think is incredibly provocative uh, in this environment. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point you raise about trying to exclude yourself from it and not even really being able to, because you're 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 basically right. There's so many different stigmas associated with different perspectives on what your life choices are that. You know, even if you don't want to participate in it, people are still going to view you a certain way. And yeah, it's really a shame. People, and I, and perhaps it'll change with time, simply because a lot of individuals are realizing, I think as time goes on, that maybe college isn't as necessary for certain individuals who want to go into certain different professions or, or for leading a good life as people previously thought it was, simply because it costs so much and it may not be a worthwhile investment. I guess that's that's one thing that I'm really interested in in a sort of empirical way is I would love to see before and after measures of how valuable do people think education and, and higher education is because on the one hand, people have raised the issue that knowing that the admissions process has been corrupted in some way necessarily lowers the value of getting an education at one of these places because part of the value is essentially the school placing a seal of approval that you know we examined this person and we found them to be meritorious and then invested the time and energy into developing them and getting them a degree and you know pushing them out into society but now Necessarily, there's some chance or some reasonable non-zero expectation that a person with a degree from one of these places was not cleanly passed through that meritorious examination. And obviously, it raises questions about sort of the character of the institution. However, on the flip side, you know, we're, we're raising the question of how much college costs and whether or not it's worth it. And we're seeing that there are people who are willing to pay not just the cost of attendance, but six-figure sums on top of that in order to get their kids into the right school. And so that, that in, in a sort of economic revealed preference sort of way, puts a price tag on, on saying, how, how much do these people value their kids getting into the school? I wonder if that is not going to have almost a larger effect, like finding, like finding out that you know, rich people are willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get access to this. Like may, maybe it's it's more valuable than we thought. And in in the same way that in sort of Instagram and and influencer culture, the fact that a shirt costs five hundred six hundred dollars almost adds to its value because it it creates almost a mystique or a sense of desirability about it. And I, I, I'm really curious to see how how this is going to sort of play out on the national psyche. Or you could make the argument that certain prices of things are assigned a very high value. For example, your child's future. Yeah. Um, whether or not how you make the argument as to if those things are economically worth what those people actually think they are is a completely separate thing. Yeah. I think. That that's is is it's it's one of those things where yeah your kid's future is very much like a sacred value, it's it's not something that 
I think people, yeah, like sit down and do like a pros and cons, cost benefit analysis on. <laughs> and it's it that's it is it's rare to see economic transactions on sacred values, right? Like it's it's rare to see dollar figures put to how much are you willing to spend to preserve, protect, or enhance this thing, which is in some way just priceless to you. Yeah, I mean that's. We could get into a whole another talk about other things that are not, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I can't remember the economic term for it, but essentially not price insensitive, but insensitive uh, to... Like elastic or inelastic demand? Kind mm-hmm. of, yeah, 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 sort of. It, the idea basically being that certain goods are non-negotiable in price and all, all the... Uh, medical related things that that entails but mm, that's a, yeah. that's a separate discussion but it, it does to some degree speak of that because it's not non it's not something you can't deny because most people don't have millions of dollars <laughs> to buy people to get into school their kids to get into certain schools but like with medical care it doesn't matter if you don't have much money you still have to pay for that medical care yeah but it, it is perhaps more of a, a luxury good where once you have enough money it's well this matters a lot to me why would i yeah. not do this and yeah that doesn't let's let's not even talk about the morality of the bribing stuff yeah but <laughs> like that's don't do that yeah it's obviously like a hundred thousand dollars is not worth the same to a billionaire as it is to mom and pop trying to send their kids to school Right, so it yeah. doesn't necessarily. We're trying to reflect. figure out how to pay for that hundred thousand dollar education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a really interesting discussion, and I don't know. It, it makes me sad, but I there's not. I don't know. I tend I tend to it makes me disappointed. I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. Oh, I I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't know. I tend to oscillate between sort of anger and amusement on this. Um, <laughs> oh, we got all the emotions covered. Yeah, I mean, there's there's. On one hand, there's there's the wonderful Aunt Becky memes that have come out of this. Um, what are they? Like there's there's an episode of Full House, and and yeah, I I will put this oh, in the show notes. Oh right, cause, yeah, uh, yeah, where where yeah. DJ doesn't get into Stanford, um, and I, I forget the whatever her crazy friend's name is. She says, "Ah, oh, you should have taken the approach I did and closed a nice crisp twenty dollar bill in the application envelope." <laughs> And then the show fucking cuts to Lori Laughlin right then <laughs> to get her reaction to <laughs> oh, No, no. <laughs> oh. Oh. I guess on on the one hand, I'm angry just because I don't know, it's 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 difficult for me at least to to put into words exactly why I feel the way I do. Well, since I had already read some articles about the college admissions process at places like Harvard and the non-denial that donations and to be fair, I, I don't think this should surprise anyone, but from the sounds of it, and again, don't know all the details, but from what I remember reading, it sounded like donations may have an influence mm-hmm. on individual's acceptance i already knew it wasn't an even playing field yeah so i don't know that's why this 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 news didn't maybe affect me as much as other folks because i i already knew legacy matters and money matters and i don't know what else to say about it really like it didn't surprise me so it just seemed like oh there you go I guess so so this is this is not directly related to it, but actually something that that previously 
I've discussed with Ashley and, and had some thoughts about myself was that when I came to Stanford and started mingling and socializing with people and talking about like what they had done prior to coming, it kind of floored me the range of enrichment activities that people send kids to mm. while they're kids and things like in, in our sphere sort of math competitions and, and things like that. For me, it was like the only thing that I was aware I could do to enhance my chances of getting into school were study harder, get better grades, you know, go to the extracurriculars at my school and whatnot. And then you kind of get here and find out that there was almost this expectation that you would be participating in competitions or events that are well known in academic and, and influential circles, but were kind of unknown to me and everyone else that I grew up with. And mm -hmm. so it's it's this is now to me mostly feels like another layer of avenues of action that just I wasn't aware of. I like not that I could have taken advantage of if I had known. And it I don't know. I'm I'm really struggling to sort of put my like there there's something here, but I'm struggling to put my finger on it. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I don't. I. I. I somewhat know what you're talking about because I remember during our orientation how many individuals uh, that weren't me that were pilots in our orientation <laughs> oh, for yeah. Aero Astro oh, yeah. were. Yeah. And that was a little weird one. Yeah. I. But I, I. I do kind of get what you're saying, and that it is also just a. There is a certain opportunity that comes along with being in different circles, and the information that comes along with being in those circles. Yeah. And opportunities that come along with them. Um. Everyone had different paths for getting where they got. And it does feel weird seeing this, knowing, having gone to a school like Stanford and, and meeting hardworking people and, and wondering, like, well, where are the people that yeah. got in this way? Because it doesn't feel like it's the ones I knew. <laughs> I guess it, it feels, and I guess this is circling back to the original point, it feels incredibly frustrating to be told to kind of accept and swallow the idea that this admissions process is meritocratic while also knowing that you are able to you know if this is a foot race like you're able to buy a bicycle and, and just ride it <laughs> down the track uh-huh yeah yeah and then Fair. and then like when the kid on the bike wins you're like well you know i feel like i feel like i did pretty good and it's like well yeah but you know he did it in like <laughs> half the time you did i'm like well yeah he did it on the bike it's like well yeah but you know <laughs> Bike riders are so cool. Like that's just that's just you know they're about that bike riding lifestyle. Don't let don't let Jono hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like yeah, you get told that like oh people who who traveled the world and and do you know they they're just hardworking and dedicated and that's why they were able to take part in these math competitions or you know they they just have a, a wanderer soul. That's why they they traveled the world. I, this this scandal is just the most brazen form of that that parents directly handing an advantage to their kids and then you know when all the dust is settled everyone's saying like oh well wasn't that a great fair game we all just played and, and yeah this is like i i feel upset i'm like i'm already past the admissions like past qualification past all all <laughs> the this thing. i can't imagine how i would feel about this if i had been denied admission right and then find out that there were kids let through the door be, be because they paid somebody to take their test for them yep 
Yeah, I think I wonder how this will change things, I guess is what I think, because it it's something it feels like something's got to give here between this and the other trials going on with Harvard. It just seems like something's got to change. But I, I only time will tell. And I, I do get where you're coming from. But I guess maybe I'm already such a pessimist that it didn't, it didn't affect me as much. Yeah, I mean, I guess like that's the the flip side. Is I guess when I when I come to amusing it is like, well, yeah, but you already knew all this. Like it's not <laughs> like this, this is this is really brazen and direct, and this is almost like yeah, like like it's almost amusing. It's like yeah, there's a totally legal above board way, and I guess maybe like fifteen or five hundred grand or you know somewhere on that order. They they felt like they were disadvantaged. Right, they're like, oh well, well, Dr. Dre can give seventy million to buy a new building to get his kid in. I got to give my kid whatever advantage I can because I'm just a a poor, lowly, single-digit millionaire. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully, it 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 sets a precedent that you can't do this in the future, that you will be found out, yeah, <laughs> and that you need to treat the system correctly. But it would be nice. At least I feel like it would be nice if it did stigmatize obviously like not just this criminal level of bribery but yeah there was a bit more stigma associated with the buy a building to get your kid in style of greasing the wheels Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it would be nice if that wasn't how it was done i i don't know what what what, how things will change i don't know how things are going to change because the people who change them got a lot of money from that (laughs) so yeah no there's (laughs) There's some building planner somewhere who just, you know, I, I doubt that you're listening to our podcast, but just had a little mini heart heart attack hearing like, <laughs> oh, no, oh, yeah. you're going to make it harder for them to give us millions of dollars. What are you doing, man? <laughs> oh, man. Do you want to you want to wrap it there and we can, you know, maybe maybe as things develop over the next years, we can come back to it at some point in the future. Yeah. And maybe maybe things will change. We'll talk to you nice people later. Take care, everyone. It's good talking with you. Bye-bye.